I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Indie Football Podcast, Rising Above the Noise. The first weekend of the season is in the books, and thus we have a jam-packed show for you today, reviewing all 10 games from a topsy-turvy few days of football. Joining me to do just that is a cast of writers, the likes of which have not been seen together since Tolstoy, Mark Twain, and R.L. Stein went out for a beer to discuss their era-defining works. Yes, say hello to Jack Pitbrook, our man about London town. Hello, Jack. Hi, Ed. Opposite Jack, we have uh, young Evan Bartlett. Evan, say hello. Hi, Ed. And we also have indie football young buck Luke Brown in the house. Luke, say ciao. Ciao. And there we have someone who follows instructions. Without further ado then, the <laughs> Premier League is underway. Uh, a hell of a lot of uh, games to review. Ten of them, 31 goals, three red cards, two own goals, and endless storylines. So where do we start? I think the natural place is to kick things off at Stamford Bridge, where the defending champions Chelsea were knocked off 3-2 in a thrilling game at Stamford Bridge by Burnley, of all teams. Jack Pitbrook taught me through it. It was an amazing result, which no one expected. But after it happened, lots of people were saying, oh, this was in fact very similar to the great Chelsea collapse in the autumn of 2015, two years ago, from a similar position, having won the title comfortably the previous year. But what, you know, when you watch the goals back, what was so remarkable was that the goals looked exactly like goals they conceded two years ago. You know, the ball would come into the box, the Chelsea defenders would basically stand still, frozen, um, the communication was non-existent, the marking was non-existent, and then a team that no one would expect to get a result there somehow managed to turn them over. It was just, it was, I mean, I can't emphasize it enough. It was just like, you know, the famous Palace win yeah, un- yeah, under yeah. Mourinho, the famous Southampton win under Mourinho, the Swansea draw, it, it was the sloppy, Liverpool basically. win. Yeah, it was, it was so, and it was, it was so, it was just the complete opposite of what the manager would want them to do. I know slightly different circumstances, but they did start slow last year before they switched formation. So, um, you know, could it just be, once again, Conte's side's a little bit undercooked? It could be, yeah. I mean, there are lots of, like, reasons for why this happened, which would suggest that it's something, it's something that they could overcome and that it's not going to be like the great 2015 catastrophe all over again. You know, we've got to, we, we, you know, we, we have to be fair. We don't know whether it's going to be that bad, yeah. but on the evidence that we have, it could definitely be that bad. Uh, but the obvious concern for Chelsea is their squad, uh, which was just about deep enough last year, considering they were fighting, you know, without European football. But they've got they're fighting on more fronts this year. They have managed to thin their squad out, essentially. The outfield options on the bench against Burnley were outside of Ara Morata, who came on, got a goal and assist, and I thought looked very good, but was deemed unfit before the game. Kennedy, Musonda, Christensen, Tamori, and Scott, with Jeremy Boger in the starting lineup. That is that a champion's... No, sort of I mean, it's, you know, Chelsea have been quite effective, I think, the last two years in trying to run their team with a small squad, like it's, you know, sort of 17, 18 reliable first team players. But now they're, I mean, they look so, so far from that. All it takes is a few injuries. Compare them to, for example, to the quality that City had on the bench. You know, their kind of nominal title rivals on Saturday. When they, you know, they had Bernardo Silva, yeah. Lemar Sane, Yaya Toure, Raheem Sterling. 
on the bench. It's, it, I mean, the gap is, is just night and day. And for that reason, I mean, I know, of course, Chelsea will have players to come back, although, of course, they'll be without Fabregas and Cahill when they play Tottenham at Wembley on Sunday. All of a sudden, this kind of title defence is now looking like it's on very shaky ground indeed. It still sounds weird when you say they're playing at Wembley on Saturday. You make it sound like it's some sort of big occasion. It is just a Premier League game after all. Luke, you're looking at that Chelsea team. They've been linked with a, a couple of players. We know Conte wants players. Uh, we know it's been a, a kind of a theme of their summer that he desperately wants these players. Daniel Drinkwater uh, is a guy that they're really after. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain is another guy they're after. Maybe Sergio Roberto, who's trying to get a new contract at Barcelona as well. So what sort of players do you think? They, do you think they need, is it just the bench guys who can come in and be top quality starters? Or do you think they are trying to actually fill out this first 11 some more? Um, I think their starting 11 is still very strong. And I think that obviously, you know, they did win the league last year. Antonio Conte is one of the best managers in football. And Hazard to come back from injury, yeah, of course. Yeah, Hazard to come back from injury. I think what must be incredibly frustrating for Chelsea fans is that the players they're being linked with aren't necessarily a better quality than the players that have left. Um, obviously, ignoring Sergio Roberto, who's brilliant. Yeah. Um, but when you look at players like uh, Matic is the most obvious example, Chalaba, who had a really, really good game for Watford against Liverpool, even people like Atsu and, and people like that, those kind of fringe players, they could have come off the bench and had a good game. Well, Atsu, uh, Atsu was good for Newcastle, I exactly, thought. He, yeah, he was dangerous against Spurs. Uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek had an excellent game for Palace uh, in a dreadful result for them and uh, Chalaba was good for Watford so yeah. that that is I guess the problem is why do you need to go out and spend money on Danny Drinkwater when you had someone like Chalaba in the building before and that's just an enduring problem Chelsea have had but I feel like we're ignoring Burnley a little bit here Evan uh, they are they were tipped by, for relegation by I think every single person <laughs> yeah, in our me, yeah. Premier League preview uh, they are now 7.5% of the way to Premier League survival yeah. according to Mathematics Maths correspondent Evan <laughs> How were Burnley? Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it, really, that, um, you know, once again, they've sold arguably their two best players in, in Michael Keane and, um, and Andre Gray, but, you know, they just carry on doing what they do. They grind out results. Very dicey. Like, yeah, very dicey, yeah. It's not, you know, the most attractive football at times, but um, very effective. And I think they're, you know, arguably their biggest problem will be if, um, is if the manager gets taken by another club. Well, Someone I mean, Dyche was, Dyche was very October. keen on that Palace job. Yeah. You know, exactly. and... It shows what a good manager can do, and it's the same with, with Tony Pulis. Is a, a guy who seems like he can always keep a team up. Do you think Dyche is kind of becoming that that guy that we'll see him go to another club and be a firefighter at some point? Yeah, I guess so. I think that's you know he's almost going to be a victim of his own success in, in that sense that maybe someone like an Allardyce who's always argued that he's deserved to get a bigger job, but you know he, when he when he keeps proving that he's going to take a team that's kind of championship, you know, lower Premier League level, yeah, um, then clubs. Yeah, at that level are going to want to take him on and want him to do the same job. Um, whether he's actually going to be able to break through and get a job at a big you know, Europa League or Champions League club, then it's hard to say, isn't it? Who's going to take that gamble? Jack, do you think there is a view of Daesh that he just has quite a low ceiling as a manager? Kind of, he, In the same way that Tony Pulis is viewed, he'll get you to 40 points, but he's not probably going to get you to 50. Yeah, I mean, I think that probably is, that probably is part of peop how people think about him. Uh, I think it's fair enough that people would think that because that is the job that he's done so far. I think that I don't. I wouldn't blame the owner of a mid-table or like potential Europa League level side for thinking that because ultimately, you know, managing for forty points is a very different job from managing for fifty or Absolutely, sixty points. Yeah. And so I don't think it's I don't think it's snobbery to think that. I think it. You know, I'm not saying he couldn't do it, but I'm saying that we don't know that he could do it. 
And from one title challenger downed at home to another, we look at our first Premier League newbies in Huddersfield who triumphed 3-0 at Selhurst Park and went top for 24 hours at least uh, in a stunning result. Uh, Steve Mounier for the golden boot this season, do you think, Evan? <laughs> he could well be up there, couldn't he? He's, um, there were some quotes after the game. He was talking about uh, sort of uh, trying to emulate Didier Drogba, who's a big idol of his, and coming in and uh, that towering header that he scored in quite early on against Palace was very reminiscent of Drogba. He scored a lot of headed goals. Uh, I think he was the second most headed goals in Ligue 1 last year. He scored 14 yeah. goals, which is one fewer than Kylian Mbappe, of course, uh, £180 million pounds worth of player. Uh, I think Huddersfield were slightly flattered by the scoreline from, from what I saw of the game, which was most of it. Uh, but this is the first Premier League team whose first goal in the division has been a known goal. Uh, that's a weird stat, but uh, a nice one. Thanks to our friends at Opta for that. Um, Crystal Palace, obviously the main issue is there, that this big system change, the big managerial change, a lot of change, Luke. Too much change, do you think, for the players to take on board? Or um, I think when you get kind of more kind of philosophical managers perhaps kind of managers coming in and wanting to implement a whole sweeping tactical change obviously that's going to take uh, much longer for players to adjust and let's not forget that like Crystal Palace had some serious problems last season anyway the defence was and the season before and the season yeah, before yeah. The, uh, the defence was just a shambles um, they relied a lot on kind of their flair players the likes of Zaha and Townsend and obviously Benteke to kind of bail them out a lot of the time um, and yeah, it will, it will take time. I think obviously this result is a bit of a, a freak result. Um, you would hope that it almost like spurs them into action. Um, it might even make kind of the um, the new manager kind of row back on some of his ideas. Sometimes you can come into a club and you want to change everything immediately and, yeah. and get to your kind of style of football, sh- you know, straight from game one. But you might actually need that little bit of time to you kind s- of. You seem like you agree with that, Jack. Yeah. Do Do you think he's do you think the players that he has there can play the way he wants them to play? Well, I think that's the problem. Frank de Boer has a bit of an uphill struggle from here. He came in and was pretty determined to switch this system, uh, which has never seemed to fit the personnel, least of all Palace's best players, uh, Wilfred Zaha, uh, Christian Benteke, and to an extent, uh, I think you could say that even Luka Milivojevic doesn't suit him, and he was so important down the stretch last year. De Boer has not been given the money to go out and remodel the squad to find players that do fit his system. So he's reliant on these players all adapting within six weeks of pre-season training starting, which is virtually impossible. Uh, I think they didn't look close to doing that. There were a lot of players that looked so uncomfortable in this shape. Uh, Scott Dan is one of those. Uh, he gave away, I think you might have seen it, the Mounier chance where Timothy Fosu Mensah yeah, made yeah. an unbelievable recovery yeah. tackle. Uh, but Dan gave that ball away dawdling. They're supposed to be passing it out from the back. They're supposed to be playing possession football and it's not natural to a lot of the guys that are in there it's quite a big switch from kind of Allardyce ball to it's a huge uh, switch and as I say maybe they just haven't had enough time you've got to give them time but the fact is if you give them time and then by October November you're a significant amount Mm. of points off the off safety it's an issue Joel Ward's inclusion uh, was baffling because he was deemed too slow to play that role in the preseason they played Andros Townsend at right wing back for every preseason game and then Joel Ward came in and was targeted and pretty much embarrassed all afternoon by Huddersfield. So there's a lot to think about for Palace. Uh, Huddersfield, though, fair player. Again, 7.5% of the way to safety. Uh, David Wagner, impressive sort of coach. All those players love playing for him. And I think uh, they might surprise a couple of people. Uh, but we'll move on from Selhurst Park uh, to North London Friday night. Arsenal against Leicester City. The first game of the season, Arsenal looked the same old self for a bit, but then showed a bit of character to come up with that win. 
Jack, uh, Olivier Giroud also reminding everyone that he's still around with a late winner off the bench. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Wenger admitted after the game that Giroud could have left this summer if he wanted to. You know, there were good offers there from Marseille, Everton, Besiktas, but he's decided to stay. And I think that, I mean, I think that's quite admirable because he's, uh, it shows the kind of character Giroud is. But it, it also does, I mean, Arsenal, he does always give Arsenal that plan B. I mean, this is kind of the problem for Giroud is that he's probably the best plan B in the Premier League, but he's not really quite good enough to be Arsenal's plan A. Like uh, every time that Wenger's chosen him as a plan A, he's then decided to play well back up front or Sanchez Absolutely. or by Lacazette because he knows that Giroud isn't really kind of sharp or quick enough to be that, that cutting edge. But there is, you know, there is certainly not since City sold Aiden Dzeko a few years ago, there is no one like him, you know, to throw him on in the second half, balls into the box, and he will always, always get you a goal. It's a bit like having the best backup quarterback in the NFL. Like, he's not good enough to be the guy, but they can toss Giroud on. And, and Giroud and Ramsey both came on, and I thought both did well. Um, Ramsey starting the season as kind of a backup in midfield behind El Elneny. Uh, how do you think his future is panning out there? It's a weird season for him. Well, I, I think that Aaron Ramsey is Arsenal's best midfielder. Um, I think that Arsenal's best football in the last few years was, for example, kind of remember in 2013-14 where he was absolutely brilliant before he got a muscle yeah, injury yeah, around yeah. Christmas. Uh, he's an, I think he's an incredible player. I, th- I actually think they were... They, I think he had been looking a bit lost to Arsenal in the last few years because basically, with the, particularly with the arrival of Ozil and with Cazorla playing in the middle, he couldn't really play that attacking midfield role that he likes to play because he he's quite an old-fashioned box-to-box type player, Ramsey. Yeah. He likes getting in the box late and making those runs. However, I thought the switch to 3-4-2-1 last season actually gave Ramsey a bit of a platform again. I thought he was pretty good, particularly in the FA Cup final where, of course, he scored that header. And I was hoping that this season he'd start in a similar vein. Now, of course, like you said, Wenger went back to Elneny, but I think that if Arsenal are going to rediscover that kind of cutting edge to their play, they should put Ramsey back in instead of Elneny for the next few weeks. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Uh, Evan, you saw this one as well. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting. Leicester really went... They kind of went for a 4-4-2, 4-4-1-1, as yeah. we'd expect from them. Lots of attacks down the wing, all Brighton on the right, Mahrez on the left, mm. swinging crosses in. Do you think that this was just because Craig Shakespeare had identified a perceived weakness in Arsenal and, you know, a couple of goals did come down uh, down the flanks. Or do you think this is just how Leicester are going to play this season? They're going to be one of those really kind of traditional throwback teams who are going to bombard down those wings. Yeah, I don't think it was a, a huge change from uh, traditional sort of Leicester that we saw two seasons ago. They kind of, you know, always played with Albrighton and Amaras down the wings. I think, yeah, as you sort of alluded to there, that Arsenal playing this kind of back three, there's not much width in defence. Um Particularly with like Oxley Chamberlain playing, playing left wing back, it's kind of a. I don't think you know it's not his natural position. He look he does look quite out of place there. So I think they had a lot of joy down that side. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. I think Arsenal's Arsenal had a bit of a makeshift defence in there. They had Kalasinac, Monreal, Holding. Yeah, Mustafi was on the bench. Mustafi was on the bench. Yeah. I think he's coming back from injury. Is he? Yes. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure if if it was a deliberate sort of knee tactic from from Shakespeare. I, I think that that is how they're going to play against most teams. Um, and I think they showed once again they're going to be dangerous this year. I think that you know they can. They do really look like we've got something. They yeah, look, I think they. Absolutely. I think they will escape the relegation battle. I think yeah, they're going to be more of a mid-table yeah. side this year. Um, little update on Arsenal. We've got Lucas Perez uh, trying to wangle his way out the club still. Uh, Deportivo, La Coruña, increasingly confident they're going to get him as far 
as I'm aware, but uh, still slightly short of what Arsenal want financially. Uh, but it was a crucial win in the end for Arsenal, who were top on Friday night. But the league leaders at the end of the weekend are Manchester United. Uh, they romped to a victory over a, a fairly pitiful West Ham side. They were 4-0 victors, Luke Brown. And what did you make of the new league leaders, Manchester United? Um, I think it was arguably the greatest Mourinho performance at United. They looked so, so good. Um, Nemanja Matic performed in exactly the way that we all thought he would. He was just absolutely tremendous in the middle and he freed up Paul Pogba to actually kind of get forward a lot more which is what United fans were hoping to see um, I think possibly most exciting from a United perspective was the way as well that Rashford and Lukaku linked up because um, it looked like they'd been playing together for years and the way that Rashford cut inside and kind of uh, played in the past which led to Lukaku's first goal was uh, absolutely brilliant um, and also just the strength and depth that United have um, We've seen this week um, Anthony Martial being linked to Tottenham, for example. Yep. The fact that they can bring somebody like him you know, on from off the bench, come straight on, scores a goal, they just look like they've got one of the strongest squads. Lindelof didn't even play, obviously. Didn't even get in the squad, right? No. Um, Jose said that's to do with, uh, he thinks he needs more time to adapt to England. Yeah, and he, was, he, he, he wasn't brilliant in the Super Cup, was he? He had some, some problems. But, I mean, yeah, just the strength of that is tremendous. Let's remember, though, Jack, uh, David Moyes, I believe, won his first Premier League game in charge of United, a thumping 4-1 win at Swansea. So, one, should we hold off putting too much stock in, in this opening day uh, victory? And two, is this is this more symbolic than anything just because of their struggles at home last season where they were drawing way too many games? This is so convincing, the way they came about and get this result. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, last year they drew at home with Stoke, Burnley, West Ham, Hull, Bournemouth, West Brom and Swansea. Those are all games you'd expect them to win. And, you know, with those points, they would have been much, much nearer the title race. And I think that all they need to do, all United really need to do this season is to show that they can start turning those draws into wins by playing like this. So in that sense, it was was the perfect response. So So you think... I wasn't convinced they were title contenders coming into the season. Um... It's a good start, obviously. They've got a, a strong squad. We've seen Chelsea drop points already. Uh, there are some other results which we'll get onto later. But United might have they might have the right makeup for a Premier League winning squad rather than say like a Champions League winning squad this season. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if you look at the the first hour of the Super Cup when they could barely get a touch of the ball. Yeah. I mean, that shows how far away they are in Europe certainly against the very, very best teams. But, I, I mean, ultimately, you don't need to be that good to win the Premier League. Well, you like, just need to be quite consistent. Yeah, you need, you need to be a bit of... You, you need to have a clear idea of how you want to win, which they do. You need to have a bit of luck with injuries or to not be in Europe, but I think they probably have a big enough squad to ride that out. Um, you need your other... You know, you need your rivals to fail. But ultimately, I think it's, it's very plausible that United could, without playing especially well, end up winning the title this year, particularly if City don't manage to turn it on. And then Lukaku, they've added an elite goal scorer. I think Luke's point is, is wise that they've been trying to get Rashford and Lukaku in the same team with good reason. And it, and it does look good. Evan, do you have any mm. other thoughts on, on United West Ham? The other thing I was going to say about United, they've got quite a, nice, uh, quite a nice start to the season. They've got quite a few easy games, which could really build some momentum for them. You know, if they can go five, six games, win them all. It also means Something they can there. rotate in the Champions League this autumn as well. Yeah, like if exactly, you just get yeah. that good start, Chelsea, for example, will be on the back foot in the Premier yeah. League and also in Europe, which is 
it's more of a psychological thing, but if it affect, if it starts to affect team selection and these things, then yeah, it does become yeah. an issue. Uh, stat for you, biggest Mourinho win as Man United manager. It's the biggest home win for him in the Premier League since Chelsea's 6-0 evisceration of Arsenal in March 2014. Anyone have any thoughts on West Ham? Bilic didn't have the best campaign last year. So uh, if they're as bad as that again, do we think he could be in trouble? I, I'm amazed that Bilic is still manager there. I thought they were terrible last year. Um, but he had, he had the good season before in the bank. He did, he did. And I think that's ultimately what saved him. And I know there were extenuating circumstances, not least moving stadium and losing Dimitri Payet. But they're a complete mess, West Ham. Like, they're, they're no organisation at all. I think that Bilic is a, you know, I think Bilic is a great guy. He's great to talk to. He's very interesting, very smart. But ultimately, I think his management is more based around motivation than it is around organisation. And I don't think in the Premier League this you know, in 2017, you can afford to be as badly organised as West Ham are. Like, even the bad teams have, you know, have got managers who who drill them very well and they are, you know, you can see what they're trying to do on the pitch, whereas West Ham actually stand out to me in the Premier League as a team who go onto the pitch without any real plan. And, and I, I mean, I said this last week, I think that's kind of reflected in their, their transfer policy as well. Um, although they could be about to sign someone who's quite impressive. We've got uh, a listener question from the iTunes review section, Lee the Hammer, who asks, how good a signing William Carvalho might be for them? And you think the answer is very good. Yeah, I mean, Carvalho is a player that the, you know, the top teams, not least Arsenal and Manchester City, have looked at a lot. He's a, you know, for those who haven't seen him, he's a big, imposing defensive midfielder, uh, plays for uh, Sporting in, in Portugal. Um, he, you know, he would cost a huge amount of money, I think. He'd probably cost, you know, the best part of They're 30. talking about 35 million yeah. euros, 35 I think. 35 million euros is, is what he'd want, but he looks well set for the Premier League. He's He was in the Portugal team, which won the Euros last year. Um, he's a very good passer. He's kind of, he's not just a, he's not just a destroyer. He kind of gets moves going. He's got a good shot on him. Uh, and I think he would be well cut out for the Premier League. However, I mean, as it happens, I think that West Ham's problems are more to do with the manager than with the players. But I do think he's a good player and I do think he'd improve them. So uh, Carvalho, potentially a, a very good signing. Hope that answers your question, Lee. If you do want to obviously ask your own listener questions, please go onto iTunes and uh, review the show. Leave your questions in there and we will be answering them every single week. That win puts United top, which means we've talked about all the teams in the top four now, I think, except for one. Uh, Tottenham Hotspur, who leapfrogged their North London rivals, Arsenal, by beating Newcastle 2-0 on Sunday. Luke, Spurs were good, but it seemed pretty even until John Joe Shelby's red card really handed Tottenham momentum <laughs> in that one. Yeah, and just what an absolutely stupid thing to do. It was a, a moment of absolute madness from Shelby. It did turn the game, because until then, Spurs were pretty frustrated Newcastle were defending deep I mean Newcastle weren't trying to play they're playing the better football though Spurs right oh yeah of course and Newcastle weren't trying to play at all and I think when you 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 know when you go out for 90 minutes with the intention of just making it difficult for the opposition and not offering that much on the counter chances are you're going to lose especially in the Premier League Um, Ericsson said after the game you know the Spurs players were a little bit um, almost confused by West um, by Newcastle's approach sorry because Usually in the Premier League, it's like a basketball game and, you know, it's end to end. And in this game, Spurs were being made to wait for for long periods. But um, I, th- I think it was another performance as well. Like, I, th- I think Spurs are getting a bit of a hard press in terms of not having signed anyone. Obviously, ideally, they would go out and sign two, three more players. But there was about four first-team players were missing for Spurs. Trippier, Danny Rose, Wanyama was on the bench. Um, and yet they still managed to kind of get a result. Walker Peters came in and was fantastic. I thought he, I thought the kid was excellent. I, yeah. I, I really thought. I mean, he got a lot of the ball, which is also always good yeah. when you're a young guy like that. 
but it meant he had confidence. Um, was very impressed by Walker Peters, actually. And he offered something so different to Trippier. Because, Absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. yeah Trippier, there was a stat, like, Trippier attempted something like one dribble uh, or something minuscule. I think it was one completed take-on yeah, in the and, whole um, of last season. He beat that in one game. Yeah, exactly. And Walker Peters, like, every time he got the ball, he was looking to actually, like, take on his man. And when he had Atsu running at him, I thought he kind of stood up to that that threat really, really well. No, I thought Spurs were very good and they were patient as well, you know, in a very frustrating game. Uh, while you're talking about transfers, Jack, Spurs are expected to do a, a lot of their business late on in this window. What are we expecting Levy to get done? It sounds like Davidson Sanchez of Ajax is one that they're definitely working on. Whether I mean, they might not get it done because there are other clubs interested. Not least last January, Barcelona were very, very close to signing him and pulled out at the last minute. So uh, what do we think? Martial, Balve Keita, Davidson Sanchez... Well, I think I think the issue they have with Sanchez is that Ajax, Ajax might just say no this time on the basis that they could sell him for twice as much as Spurs are offering. They've offered him a new contract yeah, on double months, wages in 12 as months' well. time to Real or Barca if they think he is that good. And certainly people who know a lot about Sanchez say that they think he is going to be that good. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if I, and the interesting thing about Sanchez is that I'm not sure that that is where Spurs should necessarily be prioritising their money. Like they have, you know, they have the two best centre backs in the country. They have Dyer, you know, Dyer is a very good de- deputy. I think they should really be l- looking in forward areas and wide areas, which is why they're looking at Keita Balde, who you probably know more about than me, but I think would probably be a, a good signing for them. Yeah, he's a, he's, he's a talented kid. He came through Barcelona, went to uh, went to Serie A to try and get some first team football, which is uh, a bit like Mauro Icardi did. You know, so these are guys who've got great technical background. And then he's gone there and he's impressed for Lazio. I think he's definitely leaving this summer. He absolutely wants out, but Lazio won a, a fair fee for him. He, he seems like a player who could do it in the Premier League for me, but they're obviously keeping their options open. We know they're interested in Martial. They say there was no bid uh, to Manchester United. And, uh, you know, we've, they've looked at Zaha. They've looked at Mahrez. Uh, Barkley's one they're interested in. So I'll be interested to see what Spurs do before the end. Seems interesting that they're kind of going for those kind of number 10 yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of forward players but not sent out and out they get a lot of width from their their fullbacks yeah but it seems strange that say Harry Kane gets injured for six months or three months you know we saw he got injured a couple of times last season and you know Vincent Janssen is the the backup kind of thing they're really going to struggle if if someone like Kane gets injured I mean it seems like we said this exactly 12 months ago and and they haven't done anything about it really Uh, I I don't want to ignore Newcastle I think their performance was decent Uh, they showed a little bit in attack with Atsu and Dwight Gale um, you can see why Rafa thinks they still need some additions and has been very vocal about it. Uh, but also John Joe Shelby, I can't ignore him. You know more yeah. about him than most. Yeah, I've been watching him play since he was about 16 years old. And unfortunately, he probably hasn't really matured much beyond that point. Um, he's full of potential. I think he's such a talented player. Um, but potential, I mean, how old is he now? Well, not potential, you know. Yeah, he's been 20s, right? Yeah, 25, I guess. He's got the same amount of potential as me. Yeah. Um, he's got the talent, but it's kind of Absolutely. just masked by this idiocy. Um Five yards away from the referee, stamps on Dali. You actually see that you know, there was a great view on, on Sky where you could see the referee roll his eyes yeah, yeah. as Shelby does it. <laughs> yeah. Like that is the, the level of lunacy that he was. It was what on earth are you doing? Yeah. I'm going to have to send you off for that. Yeah. That is ultimate stupidity. Um, um, so it was, I mean, it, he might lose the captaincy now over yeah. that as well, they're saying. I mean, what what must you think if you're Rafa Benitez? You know, he's, I know he's not he's not club captain. Is I think Jerome. Lascelles yeah, he was team, is, ca- team captain, team on, captain on the day. The day yeah. But you know, you give the guy the responsibility. He comes on and kind of kind of lets you down. So I don't know, <laughs> yeah, what more can you say about that? Yeah. yeah. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Uh, I guess one of the biggest stories of uh, the weekend moving on to the next game was Wayne Rooney's goal-scoring return to Everton in their win over Stoke. I actually thought they weren't at their best, but Jordan Pickford had a great game. A uh, £30 million man. I suppose it's good for him to get a good start because he's so young. That fee really could weigh on him, but he was excellent. Um, they have a surprising amount of depth as well if you look at that squad. But Mark Hughes said post-match today is all about him. So what do we expect from Rooney and Everton now? Well, it's interesting to see how Rooney's going to develop at Everton this season, particularly with the new players they bring in. Like, I think we probably all expect him to play as a second striker or number 10 this year. But of course, if they get Gilby Sigurdsson for £50 million, he would want to play there. And all of a sudden, they've got a slight issue between Sigurdsson and Rooney. Um, So I I genuinely don't know how that's going to resolve itself. I mean, it might be that Rooney's best role is to try and reinvent himself as a kind of poacher, like a sort of Jermaine Defoe type player, which of course is something that he's failed to do in the past. But if he could do that and continue to score goals like the one he scored on the weekend, I think we might well but maybe even see an England return. From what I saw, I think he was using his intelligence more like he did in that FA Cup final against Crystal Palace where he drops deep and sprays the passes and he did look good. Um, what Some of his teammates said to Simon Hughes, our man on Merseyside in the mix zone, He's one or two steps ahead of everyone else. We feel far more confident with him around. So it's almost like he is the experience and the intelligence, which is something that can't be taught. And he's got all of like 10 years plus of big, big game experience. Uh, he's got all the talent in the world. He's got the brain. He might not have the legs necessarily, Evan, but it looks like he could be an asset for them where there were certain people uh, who I won't name, Miguel, who were worried about what he could actually bring to Everton this year. Yeah, actually, I, I saw some comments from uh, Rio Ferdinand talking about his sort of signings of the season. He picked Rooney, his, obviously he's an old teammate and played with him for England, but he picked him out as one of his signings for, signings of the season. Just the all that experience that Rooney's got, you know, since he left Everton, went to Manchester United, he's won everything. Absolutely. And I was going back, just having a player of his sort of stature around the, the training pitch in the dressing room. You know, you saw him like linking up with uh, Calvert-Lewin, young English striker, and you know the influence he's going to have on players like that. I think could be could be really good for Everton, even if he doesn't add loads of goals. I think just his presence and you know. Yeah, I think he'll set up a lot as well, team. even if he doesn't score them. Yeah. He set a new Premier League record for the longest gap between two appearances for the same team, four thousand eight hundred and thirty-seven days. Uh, we should probably say something about Stoke, Luke. Newsflash from there: Hesse, uh, the former Real Madrid youngster, now at Paris Saint-Germain, is about to sign on loan for a season. Uh, he'll buttress their attack, I guess. Uh, they had a bad end to last season. They've lost their first game, albeit not by a lot, but it's not the best start for Mark Hughes. Uh, he's going with this 3-4-2-1 shape as well, uh, the very trendy 3-4-2-1 now in the Premier League. So what do we think of Stoke? Um, I think they just desperately need some flair players, don't they, really? Um, I know that Arnautovic, they obviously got a fairly good price for him. You got um, a very good price for him. Yeah, yeah. But but the problem is is that you know although he's quite an enigmatic player and although he kind of 
picks and chooses the games he's going to turn up and really put in a good performance, he would still put in incredible performances for Stoke and win Stoke games. So the fact that they've sold him for a lot of money, if they then don't go out and reinvest that money in similar players who are going to uh, turn games around, then you know what, what's what's the point really? They actually remind me a lot about a lot of West Ham, who we were just talking about. Like no real organisation, no real plan, reliant on on exciting players. And I think that you know basically a type of play which I think is increasingly outmoded in the Premier League. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see them, even with even if Heze comes and even if Heze does well, to see them towards the bottom end of the league over the course of the season. I, I like Heze. I, I, just a, I think he, he's a very talented kid, but he couldn't turn it on going back to his hometown club last year on loan with, with Las Palmas. I think his attitude isn't quite right. He'll be with a few Spanish guys up in Stoke, but if this doesn't work out for him, then he's going to plummet through the league. So because I think it's kind of it. Um, but I don't think it's the best place to be if you want to succeed. Uh, what I will say in Stoke's defence, uh, which is rare that I'm going to defend them, but their back three of Martins Indy, uh, Shawcross, and Kurt Zuma is not a bad back three. I think that's three very good, well, good to very good Premier League centre backs. Evan, yeah. do you agree? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the strange thing about so I think as you were saying, but with West Ham, they seem to have lost their identity a bit, don't they? The last few years, you know. They but, that, the... First, it was a deliberate thing, and now it seems like a a genuine loss to to the club. Yeah, I think it's fine if you know if if you change your identity for another one, but it just seems that they've lost their old. They kind got of rid of one and maybe one haven't and brought in just haven't new. brought in another one. Yeah. Yet, so. We should move on to uh, some more Premier League new boys. Brighton, they're the final promoted side that we haven't discussed yet, guys. Um, they lost 2-0 to Manchester City. I guess that's a respectable defeat at home to the title favourites. First of all, can I get your thoughts on on Albion, please? Uh, Evan, you watched this one. Yeah, I saw bits of it. Um, I thought they did quite well, actually. You know, They kept probably the best attacking team in the Premier League. Man City have got talents all over the pitch. Um, they kept them quiet for I think it was 70 minutes was it the first goal yeah the first goal um, was 70 uh, 70 so, and then uh, 75th minute own goal from Lewis Dunk yeah they looked um, they looked very well organised it was Chris Hewton yeah, 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 yeah exactly it, it they it. played I, th- I felt with the nouns that you'd expect from someone like Chris Hewton who's yeah. an experienced manager who knew that they were going to be up against it yeah. uh, I enjoyed Lewis Dunk's header because it was a brilliant finish it was one of those own goals where it's, he's genuinely thumped it yeah, past his own header. keeper um, Dunk is never dull he's the seventh player to score an own goal in his Premier League debut and that's kind of fitting because he is partial to a calamity be it a red card or an own goal so if you've not seen much of him before he's one to keep an eye on this season I think Brighton we didn't get to see the best of them they've got some good yeah. players there yeah. uh, who we will see far more of when they have chances to attack basically but they're up yeah. against an impressive City side Jack uh, City playing a new shape they had Aguero and Gabriel Jesus up front so it was kind of a 5 two. One, two, sort of shape. Yeah, well, that's how they've been playing in pre-season. This three-five-two, and I think you're right. I think he's. I think that Pep's doing it because he wants to play Aguero and Gabriel together uh, as a pair, and I think he wants to do that because I don't think he really trusts Aguero to do the pressing that he wants. Right. I mean, we all know there's this issue between uh, Guardiola and Aguero. I think this largely stems from the defensive work that Aguero doesn't do. Uh, I think that. You know, if it were it not for Gabriel's uh, broken foot in February last season, I think Gabriel would have played far more, and Aguero would have played far less over the second course of la- the second half of last season. I actually think that Guardiola, in part, blamed Aguero for City's defeat at Monaco away, which got them knocked out of the Champions League. But Aguero's still there; he's the main man. The board love him, the fans love him, 
And I think to kind of solve this issue, he's played the two together. However, I don't think that the 3-5-2 is really sustainable as City's best formation yeah. because their best player in the second half of last season was Leroy Sané. Right, and the only yeah. place that Sané can play in this system is left wing back, which he has done a little bit in pre-season, but it's not really where you want him. So I, I wonder if over the course of the season we'll see City perhaps moving back to the 4-3-3 to get Sane back in the team, potentially at the cost of Aguero. And when they're rotating for the Champions League, it'll make more sense. You know, they'll only need to play one of them. I guess you could, if add a push, put Jesus out wide in the, in the 4-3-3 as well. But but broadly, we're all impressed by by City. You all think City are still favourites. I mean, they've got a lot to, to show, I think, on the field this season. They've got an incredibly deep bench, as you said earlier. And when you compared that to their title challenges, um, it was obvious. But Luke... Is there a, a sense that, that City still may be a defender short? Yeah, it will be really, really interesting to see City in their first game against the kind of team that's really going to go at them. Um, obviously, Brighton's only real choice in that match was to to sit back, to, to try and contain um, City. Kyle Walker was obviously man of the match and just spent pretty much the entire game in Brighton's half. So when the team actually kind of tries to get beyond the fullbacks and actually kind of put pressure on that defence, I think that's when we'll get a true kind of gauge of City's title credentials. I mean, as Jack said, they're just they're not going to be able to play that formation, I don't think, in every single match. Um, they'll be much better when Mendy's back, though, because Danilo yeah. is not yeah, on their wing. Danilo back, struggled. Yes. I don't um, know why they're thinking can play both sides, because no evidence at Real Madrid suggests he's even that good. He, let didn't, alone he didn't play solid. that wing back. And just the fact that, like, yeah, like a player like Sané can be restricted to, A, the substitutes bench, and then he comes on in a kind of unfamiliar position, like... I mean, it's, their strength and depth is, is ridiculous, but I, I do think that there's still some work for Guardiola to do in working out how to kind of accommodate all of his all of his best players. The one worry I have with City is that they've spent more than £200 million this summer and then they're, they're still in the position they've been in for years, which is this desperate like dependence on Vincent Kompany. And the evidence of last season is that when Kompany isn't fit, City are a complete shambles at the back. When he is fit, they're really good. And yet, you know, the, the solution is to that is surely going to be by an experienced centre back who can who means that you know you can survive the loss of company. They haven't done that, and now obviously company's fit. City are fine. If company gets injured again, City are in trouble. And there's no evidence you can rely on him to stay fit either. Yeah. No. And do we know? Do we think Pep knows who his favoured partner is at the back for company? He played three at the back on. on I think. Sunday, I think. Yeah. With, with the three, it's Saturday, obviously. Right. I think it's Stones in the middle and company not to mend yeah. either side. If it's going to be the two, I imagine it'd be Stones because mm. uh, Pep loves Stones' ability to play out from the back. Yeah. But you know, Sto- Stones is such a good example because Stones is so good when Company's there to hold his hand and tell him what to do. Take Stones yeah. out, sorry, take Company out and have Otamendi alongside Stones, and the two of them are completely Good clueless. Lost, yeah. We're nearly through the weekend's action. Uh, we managed to get this far somehow without discussing the goal fest at Vicarage Road on Saturday. Luke, you were there. Uh, mm. You watched Watford 3, Liverpool 3. What's the biggest thing you took away from that game? Um, it, was, it was an absolutely bizarre match. I think everybody knew it was a pretty. It was going to be a bizarre match when Okaka started and was absolutely sensational for 20 minutes, scored the opening goal. Um, Liverpool are just so bad at the back. Um, all three goals were a result of defensive errors. There was a suggestion of offside for the third, so uh, Klopp's post-match comments kind of centred around that. But they've just they've just got so much work to do. Um, Marino was just not they had a poor game. Alexander Arnold obviously is young, but again he struggled. Um, well, we, we've got a listener question 
from White Fang LA on uh, on iTunes. I said, if you leave a review uh, with your question in there, we will get it on the pod. And he asks if injuries are Liverpool's biggest barrier to a title challenge. But it does seem like their defence is. Yeah, no, absolutely not. It's, it's, the, it's the back line. Um, they desperately need some kind of reinforcements there. Klopp's post-match comments were, were very strange, actually, because he gave an interview in which he... Uh, said that the club were working on making new signings, um, especially defensive signings. But then almost kind of rode back on those comments and said, um, you know, that maybe going out and signing a player wouldn't necessarily be the kind of, you know, magic solution to Liverpool's defence, which is what Carragher alluded to. That's true, right? Is there an argument to be made that the biggest improvement to Liverpool's defence could be on the training field. You'd hope Andrew Robertson could be an upgrade on Moreno because he's been inconsistent to say the least since he's been there. You'd hope Virgil van Dijk, if that finally happens, would help the situation out. But considering they are looking this bad all the time, yeah. and especially from set-piece situations which are eminently fixable, you, can we not start looking at the coaching rather than just the personnel? I, th- I think you can. And the van Dijk situation just reminds me of when Liverpool went out and bought Lovren. Uh, just because, you know, it's a defender coming in for big money from a Premier League rival who's got Premier League uh, experience, who's then just expected to completely transform the defence. But the problems with Liverpool's defence have been there a pretty long time. You know, it's a, it's a long time since they've had a title-winning uh, worthy defence. And I, I really don't think signing Van Dijk will suddenly make all of his teammates, you know, defend properly from set pieces. The, the corners they considered goals from, it was just basic stuff. Okaka is a is a pretty big bloke and he was standing completely unmarked from an in-swinging corner so transfers aren't going to solve that. Yeah and they had uh, you know playing this sort of zonal marking aren't they at corners yeah, Liverpool, yeah. but they had like Roberto Firmino as the, the guy in the middle. Yeah zonal marking can work but you need to do it right. Yeah. Uh, we do have uh, some latest news which is that Felipe Coutinho not travelling to Germany for their Champions League tie against Hoffenheim. We've got a listener question uh, from Twitter which is uh, Ricardo at boy without a thorn. If Liverpool sell Coutinho, who realistically could they replace him with at this point in the transfer market, Jack? Well, it's difficult because, you know, they won't be able to replace him with anyone as good. Like, that's the problem with this kind of player. Um, one guy who we discussed earlier off air, I think could do a good job, is Julian Draxler. Made a surprise. Could be available. I don't know if I've, if I've stolen your suggestion there, but he, he obviously went from Wolfsburg to Paris Saint-Germain last year. Since when Paris Saint-Germain have signed a, uh, a left winger called Neymar? Yeah, no, I've heard uh, he's good. I've heard he's good. Who, yeah, apparently he's quite handy, and he plays in Draxler's position. So that makes you think. Well, Draxler, like Javier Pastore, you know, he won't be getting a game for a while. PSG have got an abundance of great young attacks. They've also got Giovanni Lo Celso. They signed from Rosario Central about a year ago, and that kid is the nuts. Yeah. Um, so I think. One, at least one of those has to give. There are too many guys there. Lucas Moore is still there. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of players in those roles who could go. Draxler is a very talented player. He's the sort of player that Premier League clubs are all desperate to sign. So I think that is a pretty good um, suggestion. Luke, do you have anyone? Uh, again, it's very difficult. Uh, I mean, Lanzini? Well, they've been linked with Lanzini, but he's... Personally, I mean, I don't think he's anywhere near good enough. Do you I, think so? I think, I think he's, a, he's a good player, and I think he's done well in a team that, you know, has struggled. I mean, last year, West Ham were pretty object. He had that game against Tottenham that Jack and I were at, and he was absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, uh, the problem that Liverpool are going to have is that if they suddenly receive 90 million, 100 million, 100, you know, whatever, teams are going to demand a significant portion of that for their star attacking player, as Lanzini is at West Ham. So they're going to be paying over the odds for whoever they get. Um, yeah. So maybe aiming for realistic targets isn't the way to go. Maybe they should just kind of, you know, target some pretty uh, out there signings. Evan, who would the out there signing be? Um, 
Yeah, I was going to say, I, I mean, I suppose there are kind of obvious Premier League options, uh, like maybe Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain or Riyad Mahrez. Um, but yeah, more out there ones, maybe Klopp might look back to the Bundesliga. Try Pulisic again? Someone. Pulisic, maybe maybe uh, Emil Forsberg at, um, at Leipzig, at Leipzig yeah. or what? even like a Max Meyer at Schalke. He's kind of a... You know, quite young. He'd be. He's not not a finished product. Loves the club, though. I wonder if yeah. Klopp might have a look back for Mario Götze, who was obviously oh, so, yeah, so yeah. good for for Klopp and Dortmund before his move to Bayern. The kid who point, completed football at 22. <laughs> and yeah, has kind and his of career's obviously gone since. pretty much off the rails. He's now back at Dortmund, uh, but you know, Klopp knows him better than anyone. He's got him to play so well. He could actually do that role there. Yeah, but I mean. <laughs> To answer your question, Ricardo, we don't really know, but it does look like uh, Coutinho might be staying put regardless. It'll be interesting to see if Klopp can get him back into the fold at the end of the day. Can I really quickly as well just say something about Watford? Because Go on, yes, Watford yes. were very good, was really impressed. Obviously, they've got their own issues. They considered three goals. Um, Gomez was typically a little bit dodgy. But what we were saying about the ball going into Crystal Palace and trying to implement this philosophy really, really quickly, I think Silva deserves credit for delivering quite a kind of un, a silver performance. I, I expected to see this kind of new flowing style and possession-based football. He selected Okaka up front, used him as a complete battering ram, pushed cleverly up front, and and it was quite a kind of pragmatic, uh, counter-attacking... He's, uh, smart co- he's a smart coach. He can be very very yeah. hard-nosed as well. I, I think that's one of his great things. He's versatile. He gets the players playing for him. I thought they looked good as well. He's brave as well to leave Andre Gray out after signing him for, you know... Uh, a club record fee, I think. Yeah, I, I like what Marco Silva's doing. I think Watford will be will be I good. The only slight cause for concern, I thought, is they looked absolutely brilliant in the first half, and then they just had a 15 minutes of yeah. kind of collapse in the second half. I think that. But might it was be it was to, thrilling. Yeah, and, oh, it was great fun for everyone. From but, that uh, thriller in Hertfordshire, yeah. we go to the final two games, which managed just a single goal between them. So we won't spend too long on those. West Brom beat Bournemouth thanks to a goal from new signing six foot five inch centre half Ahmed Hegazi who I would bet every penny I own will now become known as Big Ahmed by Tony Pulis if he is not already. The baggies look like everything we expect from a Pulis side Jack. They were solid, they were tough to break down, they were strong from set pieces and of course Bournemouth struggled to break them down. Yeah I mean I think that we all expect Pulis to get the same result this season that he gets every every season. I think the evidence of for example Pulis's time at Stoke is that eventually Fans get bored and don't want it anymore. I don't know whether we're at that point yet with West Brom fans. You'd have to ask them. Uh, but yeah, for now, they you know no one no one knows better than Pulis how to how to get the most of the resources that he's got. Absolutely, Afobi and King up front for Bournemouth. Defoe came on for the last thirty five minutes or so. Luke, Evan, do we worry about the front line being able to break teams down, and particularly away from home? Potentially, yeah. And I mean, uh, when we did our predictions last week, which we talked about on the pod, I said I well I selected that uh, Defoe was going to be the flop of the season I just I, just, I, I don't think he's going to be able to replicate the two um, performances he had for Sunderland in the last two seasons it's really hard to see him get into 15 goals um, and I think I think Bournemouth could struggle this year yeah I think they had something like 70% possession didn't they against you know Pulis's West Brom who traditionally don't have very much possession but but they created one chance. I think maybe oh, West, they had, they West had Brom did header. not look like conceding yeah. this game. Um, so I think that's a worrying sign if you're a Bournemouth fan. And actually a more exciting game was goalless on the South Coast uh, in Southampton for Swansea's visit. Uh, it was a game very much dominated by Saints who, who should have won this, absolutely should have won this. And Paul Clement was under no illusions that his side had been outplayed. Uh, they escaped with a point which bodes well for them, Jack. But Pellegrino's side, they might not be very attacking, but I think they could be very effective. Yeah, they could well be. I worry a bit for Swansea, actually, this season. I think that the evidence the last few years suggests that giving a permanent job to a manager who kept you up isn't always the best way of mm. keeping you up the following year. 
I look at Sunderland, the number of managers who kept them up who they then had to get rid of because they couldn't reproduce it the next season. I know Clement did really well last year, but they're, they're, looks like they're going to lose Sigurdsson. Uh, they haven't bought well for a while at Swansea, and so I expect them to be in trouble in a few months' time. I think like Sigurdsson was responsible for 20 goals was it last season for, for a club that nearly got relegated. That's a big chunk, isn't it? And you know, even if they do get £50 million, they haven't got long to replace him, have they? So, Well, they've they just got to find a guy who's good at set-pieces yeah. because so many of those goals yeah, yeah. came from set-piece situations or assist as well. Um, but that is all 10 games uh, from the weekend that we've covered. Uh, I do want to have a quick look ahead um, on Tuesday, Liverpool against Hoffenheim in the Champions League. Uh, it's very important for them. This It's a very tough playoff round where you've got a lot of these good teams that finished fourth in their big leagues playing against each other while the champions from smaller leagues play against each other. I completely understand why they do that. and I think it's good, but it means that unfortunately we're going to lose either Liverpool or Hoffenheim at this stage. Uh, do you have any thoughts going into this one, Evan? Yeah, I think, I mean, Liverpool really need to pull out a big performance after the after the weekend, kind of a disappointing 3-3 draw. Um, it'll be a disaster, really, if they don't qualify for the Champions League, but it's by any by no means going to be an easy an easy tie against Hoffenheim. Um, I think if they can nick a one nil or you know one goal lead, what they're away tomorrow night on they yeah, Tuesday yeah. night, uh, and then get them back to Anfield, then I think that'll be okay. But if they're a goal behind or maybe going in level, then it's going to be a nervy fixture. But it, it could suit them to play on the counter attack uh, away at Hoffenheim, Luke. Yeah. Whereas obviously against Watford, they were more dominant than they would be. Yeah, although, as we said, that their problems come from set pieces. So, you know, if, if Hoffenheim get that opportunity, I think you would back them to maybe take some chances. Worryingly for Liverpool as well, Hoffenheim are very good at home and have a very good defensive record. So, on you know, it, it looks like it could be a very tricky game for Liverpool. And I think Liverpool's strategy against Watford was just to outscore them. In a Champions League tie where, you know, away goals uh, come into the equation and with the fact that Hoffenheim are traditionally good at home, that, that Klopp won't be able to kind of use that strategy, which which could kind of really, really hurt them. It's huge for Liverpool, absolutely massive. Um, Celtic also in Champions League action, I believe. And we've got Everton on Thursday. But next week's Premier League slate, uh, Swansea Man United is the Saturday lunchtime game. Got the 3pm slate is... Uh, Interesting. Bournemouth versus Watford. Burnley versus West Brom. Leicester versus Brighton. Liverpool v Palace is probably the pick of them with De Boer going to Anfield needing a result. Um, and maybe Liverpool with one eye on the Champions League. Southampton against West Ham. The 5.30 game should be interesting. I think Arsenal visiting Stoke. An early kind of televised national viewing under the microscope for Mark Hughes, who really got away with it down the stretch last season because people weren't paying attention to how bad their results were. But then on Sunday... Huddersfield versus Newcastle should be interesting, I think, a clash of newly promoted sides. And then the big one, as you say, at Wembley, Jack, not a cup final, but feels like an early, well, certainly the most important game of the early season. We've got a listener question from at Ready Harish, one, two, three, a listener from Bengaluru in India. Thank you. We appreciate our international listeners. Do Chelsea have any chance of getting anything at Spurs next week? If they lose, they'll already be six points off the pace. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be fascinating to see whether Chelsea get out of that. I mean, of course, the last time the two teams met, I think, was the um, FA Cup semi-final at Wembley, where Chelsea were just too strong for to- for a Tottenham team playing well. Chelsea were just too strong and beat them. But and Do you remember Tottenham went into that and everyone was saying Tottenham are the form team, Tottenham could do this, Tottenham could overturn Chelsea. And, Chelsea, and Conte really just put on a clinic that day. Yeah, yeah, they were really good. But then equally, like, the two... The two 
I can think of two times in the last few seasons where Pochettino's Tottenham have kind of unpicked Chelsea and really, really exposed them. There was the 5-3 in January 2015 at White Hart Lane. And then, all, not quite as exciting, but even more impressive than that, when Tottenham ended Chelsea's famous winning run in January of this year, beat them 2-0 at home. Um, and, you know, so clearly they've got an ability against both, I mean, first against Mourinho's Chelsea and also against Conte's Chelsea. They Tottenham know how to beat them. Like, they can match them for... Uh, for organisation, for physical strength, for power, for incision. And so they've got all the tools to do it. And given that Chelsea will be coming into this game off the back of the terrible Burnley defeat with suspended Gary Cahill and Cesc Fabregas, there's never been a better time for Tottenham to assert themselves over Chelsea again and to show that they can start winning big Premier League games routinely at Wembley, which is going to be one of the big, big question marks hanging over them this season. If they do beat Chelsea, obviously it's a big thing because it continues the momentum really from the last two campaigns. Whereas if they if they got off to a poor start, people are asking questions. There's this slight, how would you say, tumult about the contracts and, and players not being paid enough. Uh, Danny Rose, uh, since we last recorded, apologised for that. N- not quite. He apologised for the timing and manner of his comments, but not necessarily the content. What do you read into that? Yeah, I mean, you know, clearly he stands by the opinions that he expressed. He wants to get though, paid more. Even though he regrets the, you know, the kind of clunkiness of them appearing in, in another newspaper a few days before the start of the season. I think that's a recognition of the fact that lots of, and lots of Spurs players agreed with what Danny said. Like, that is a squad full of players who feels underpaid because, you know, they, they came second last year, they came third the year before, they were established as one of the best teams in the country, and yet they're paid like they're still the sixth best team in the country. And indeed, Hugo Lloris came out and said yesterday that he completely understood the comments. Yeah, th- that, that is Rose's frustration. And you know, people shouldn't think that the other players don't feel that way just because they haven't come out and said it. You know, the other players might think, well, maybe, maybe it wouldn't be wise to come and say this, but they all feel that way. And I think ultimately... in if Tottenham are if Tottenham are really going to keep this exciting group of players together into the new season, sorry, into the new stadium, which has always been the plan, then they will I think they will have to give a little bit on their wage structure because I don't think that the current players can be kept happy on the restricted wages that they're on. I can I have a quick prediction for this one then, Jack? Uh, Tottenham are gonna win two 0 Luke? I'm gonna go two one Tottenham. Two one Tottenham. Uh, one all draw. Yeah, I uh, weirdly fancy Chelsea. Um I know they they haven't actually necessarily done that well at Wembley even uh, recently, but I really, really think Conte knows how to fire a team up. I think they're going to be back in for this. Uh, I wouldn't even be surprised if they signed a player this week uh, because they seem to realise now they need to get on that. Uh, Danny Drinkwater, Alex Oxlade, Chamberlain, two guys they're they're looking at a lot. Um, But I think otherwise, that's pretty much it for the week, guys. So... um, Thank you for joining us for this week's Indie Football Podcast. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us again. The listener numbers have been amazing so far, um, and we really appreciate that with so many alternatives out there. If you would like your question to be part of next week's show, as I said, the best thing you can do is get them into review on iTunes. If they're five-star, you've got a better chance. But otherwise, after a hectic first weekend of the Premier League season, that is all we have time for. So allow me to say thank you to Peckham's finest, Jack Pitbrook. Thank you, Ed. Evan Bartlett, say goodbye. Goodbye. Luke Brown, say thank you. Thank you. And thank you to uh, producer Matt Murphy and also to Acast who help us out with the podcast every week. That is everything. Until next Monday, goodbye.